Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast for this episode. I'm glad to be joined by Jonathan Larby, the CEO of T-Pro. Jonathan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I believe you grew up in Northampton over in the UK. Any favorite standout memories of your childhood while growing up in Northampton? Uh, yeah, Northampton is is not the uh, celebrity hotspot that a lot of people think it is. So standout memories are, are thin on the ground. Um, I suppose I, I grew up on a farm, um, middle of nowhere. I used to have to get the, the, the local council put a taxi on for my parents to bring me to the bus stop to take me to school. That's how far out we were. Um, wow. So yeah, really middle of nowhere kind of stuff. Um, most of my kind of, you know, standout memories revolve around sport and I just played everything growing up. My parents mm-hmm. were really sportive and drove me around. My mum particularly, you playing cricket on a Sunday, tennis on a Monday, rugby on a Tuesday, soccer on a Wednesday, you know, it's uh, just getting me out of the house as much as possible. So for me, it was just about being outdoors. I love it. I love it. I was actually born in the UK myself. I was born in Leicester, um, but moved back to Ireland when I was one and a half, two years old. Just on the Um, road, local rivalry. Yeah. Uh, Talk about soccer. You must have been happy with the win last night. Delighted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's... Obviously, great to, to beat Germany. Um, looking forward to a humiliating defeat by the Ukraine now. Now everyone's, <laughs> you know, got their hopes up. <laughs> it's coming home, etc. So we can only lose. If you were going to lose, it would probably be to Ukraine, typical fashion. But yeah. who knows? Fingers crossed. Um, you have an English accent. I'm curious to know what brought you to Ireland, because most people from Ireland go the opposite way. <laughs> yeah, I, I originally I originally came over here um, just playing rugby and sort of chasing that around the world a little bit. You know, um, I, I was playing in the UK. I went over to Australia for a bit, played over there um, and then came and, and played over here. Uh, I think when I was, you know, when I was young, left college 2021, 20, uh, I still had like a glimmer of hope in the back of my mind that I'd, I'd make it as the next big thing. I've got a couple of friends that I see put so much into rugby while still at college and you'd swear they'd make it, but the talent level must just be exceptionally high. I, have a, I went to college and I got a guy called Steve Crosby. He played in Australia for a while, played for Connacht rugby, but just didn't make it in the end. And I saw the amount of work that he put in to juggle both university and rugby at the same time. I, 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 kudos to you for getting a degree in the end because I don't know it's like two full-time jobs with like a third magical job of just having organizational skills uh, yeah kudos to you for that yeah, um, yeah. the degree was a, I think a bit of a fluke but uh, <laughs> the rugby certainly took precedence at that stage you know well you studied law at Sheffield um, yeah. was that a topic that you were interested in going up was there any inspiration from potential teachers parents relatives or was it just something that you put down and, and you got into yeah I, I think um you, you have kind of careers days and things like that at school mm. um and, and in the uk there's a slightly different educational system so you have to specialize quite early you pick 
four kind of subjects for your A levels, or you know, we yeah, did yeah. when I was when I was at school, and just the subjects I picked probably lent themselves to law. So if you go into the careers day, they go, oh, you know, your grades are quite good. You're doing these subjects. Here's a profession that you should target, and I just kind of followed the advice I was given more than anything to be honest with you there's no real desire to become a lawyer or you know sit there reading statutes or case law all day every day law rugby and then recruitment there's no like linear path through your career so far so how did you end up in recruitment um I think that that was by mistake um I you you mentioned you mentioned kind of Steve there and there are there are other lads who um, would have ended up playing kind of AIL rugby, you know, to, and certainly from my point of view, there was always, I, you know, I was playing full-time in the UK and then I came over here and I still had kind of inklings in the back of my head that I'd, I'd make it as a rugby player. And you very quickly, when you get past the age of 21 and stop playing age group rugby and have to play with men, you kind of realise pretty quickly that actually you're, you're crap and no one's going to pay you and someone has to keep the lights on. So then I sort of transitioned. I was quite lucky that I, I transitioned over a couple of years into only really playing and not working and the playing kind of subsidized my life. Into... What's that like though? Realizing that you're not going to make it to something that you've put so much time and effort into. Um, it, it, in all honesty, there's, there's frustrating moments in that, you know, you're, I remember when I was when I was playing over in the UK, um, they they used to you walk in on a Tuesday night, and the team would be up on the board, and they did no no conversations with anyone. You know, the team for the weekend is just up on the board, and um, if your name's not there, you know you're having a crap week, and you know you're just holding tackle bags and doing extra fitness and that kind of thing. Um, but outside of those moments, you know it it's actually when you, when you get to the point you realize rugby becomes more fun and i i played for i played for 10 years in Clontarf and loved every minute of it because i wasn't trying to be better than i was uh, and i was just enjoying playing and enjoying being there and the older you get the more sort of self aware you are you know what your limitations are you know certain players are better than you or not better than you and you just enjoy playing and that's you know that it's probably a nice thing uh, not everyone would agree with me i'm sure but that kind of sounds like you got into it for the love of it and then it almost like a 360 degree revisit you're back in but the love is there as much as it was in the beginning yeah yeah and i, I suppose it's more around what do you what do you enjoy about it you enjoy the obviously everyone kind of goes on about the camaraderie and the enjoying being part of a team environment and then there's a competitive nature to it. So you enjoy exceeding that when you're a young lad, you enjoy going up through the age groups and getting, you know, like England caps and things like this. And if you're playing in a under 20s World Cup or whatever, or for me, it was, you know, there were 19s or 21s, shows how old I am. Um, but those, those kind of things, that gives you the sense of achievement. And then you go from that to being on the bench or being dropped every week. And you kind of, hold on a second i i used to be i used to be the big fish and now i'm a very small fish in in quite a big pond mm. um and it that's it it's frustrating more than anything else so you don't you don't lose like love of the game you you enjoy playing you enjoy messing around 
you know, there's there's a lot to be said for do I want to be, you know, getting flogged as a uh, an associate in KPMG, or do I want to be dropped on a Thursday night playing rugby golf while the lads are doing a team run? You know, which mm. which which is it? And I know which I prefer to do. Um, but it's uh, yeah, there's there's sort of ups and downs throughout the whole thing, I suppose. But just before we move on from this, I have one final question, and it's. As you're playing rugby, um, what's it like to, because uh, you've mentioned the camaraderie and the friendship, what's it like to have that, but then also uh, be trying to take, I don't know what number you were playing, but trying to take the number 15 jersey off the player who's currently wearing that on the weekends and also competing against potentially one other person to fight for that. So there's a competitiveness, but also there's a friendship. Is, is, is that strange or is it just sort of, it flows naturally? No, I think that well, for me, it's always flowed pretty naturally. You know, there's there's competitiveness within a squad, but in that in that environment, you you want the team to do well. So your success is measured by team success. There's no use starting on a team that gets relegated. You know, uh, mm. like even think back to Clontarf. We're in finals every year. We kind of won silverware over the ten year periods that I was there. I wasn't starting all the time. Did that bother me? Yes, it did. Would I change the outcome? No, I wouldn't. You know, um, and it's it, it's all about the kind of collective and what you the real satisfaction you get out of it is, you know, the hard work that you plus the collective have put in. There are forty lads who are killing themselves every week, and especially at that level mm. where you do have jobs and people have other commitments. So the level that you have to put in to be successful is almost higher because you're not paid to be there it's a decision to turn up and and put the effort in and do well you know for any of our international listeners Clontarf is a, a exceptionally good club to play rugby at considering that you'd also have a job as well it is I've got a couple of friends who played I don't know if he still plays a guy called Dylan Doyle played for Clontarf for a while um these are probably a bit younger than you I think Keane Healy played for Clontarf, didn't he? He did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you've uh, you've you've been on a team with some great people. Two years in recruitment, three years as a receivership manager. Um, focusing on T Pro, did any of did you learn any lessons from your five years spent either in recruitment or in receivership that you could carry over so that you wouldn't make as many mistakes as you potentially would have now that you're a CEO of T Pro? Yeah, yeah, I think you you learn everything. You learn something from everything you do, um, and the the recruitment business um, was an interesting one because that was when I was kind of my first real sort of office based job, essentially. Um, and the guys I was working for there was a very kind of small team, small company, um, and they were brilliant. I had direct access to them, and I learned loads about just running a business and the stresses and strains of running a business. Um, and then that was 2007, 2008 came recruitment suddenly is, is just gone pop. There is no recruitment. There are no jobs. No one's recruiting for anything. And we were kind of sat in an office. Um, and I was, I was luckily enough. I think I was number one, sort of decent enough to, to be around. I did my job, but number two, probably cheap labor. So I was, I was the last to kind of be let go in that scenario. And we were literally sitting in the office um, and we had a pitch and putt little mini golf thing set up and we were knocking golf balls around trying to think of ideas, businesses. And one of the businesses we 
came up with was TPRO. The other one was this insolvency practice and the lads have an accountancy background. So the insolvency stuff was obviously very of the time um, and that took off straight away. Um, and we did, um, we did receiverships, which is um, there's, you know, people with property portfolios where they're not paying the mortgage and the banks would put in a rent receiver. So they'd, they'd basically take the, take the lien on the property, appoint a rent receiver, which was us. And we'd go in and we'd manage the properties. We'd collect and redirect the rent to the banks rather than going into the, into the owner's pockets. And then at some point they would probably crystallize their losses and dispose of that asset in some way. Uh, and we managed that whole process. But the other side of the business was um, limited companies and liquidating limited companies, whether that be, you know, because they're insolvent or because they've just fulfilled their natural life cycle. And you learn a lot around that. So you learn about the pitfalls and how people can get into trouble, how people can get into trouble around how they deal with sort of tax situations, what you can do around arrangements. You can look at things like examinerships and stuff like that and see how those businesses are then restructured and brought back to life as it were. So you can have a, an operationally successful business, which is just leveraged with historic debt or is is under pressure in, in some other way um so you really get to into the nuts and bolts of of running a business and i think that's really carried through for me um into tpro and how how we run things here and you know not over leveraging yourself not taking any unnecessary risks and not sort of putting yourself in a position that can backfire too much it just allows you to kind of mitigate those things and and grow in a sustainable fashion why don't you take 30 seconds to tell the listeners what tpro is yeah okay so tpro is a uh, healthcare company um, and we provide technology-based solutions around documentation in healthcare and we basically do the digitization and transformation of that entire patient flow process so anytime a doctor sees a patient there's a, a requirement for them to document that care, whether that be a sort of a note against your file, whether it be a letter that gets sent back to your, your GP, or whether it be onward referrals, scans, those kind of things. And that, that documentation process, that is what really feeds all of the data around healthcare. And then you can start digging into that data and you can improve patient care pathways. You can improve the actual healthcare you deliver. But it's a huge burden for the clinicians. It adds, you know, yeah, hours imagine. onto their day because they're they're doing so much kind of admin outside of actually caring for patients. So what we try and do is layer in AI technology, services, workflows, automation that reduces or eliminates that burden for them and saves them a ton of time. Yeah, exactly. The receivership business and T Pro. Um, you went with T Pro in the end um what was your strategy for growth in the early days yeah so the, the early days of tpro we we essentially set the business up as a service business so mm -hmm. we're talking about that documentation piece we we set it up initially for lawyers and we were doing their documentation for them so traditionally they would dictate they'd give it to a secretary the secretary types it up it hands back to them they make redline it make corrections back to the secretary again secretary retypes it back to them they sign it it goes out to a client 
and that's a very manual, very laborious process. The secretaries uh, in a legal office are tend to be legal execs, which are kind of quite highly qualified, highly paid people. So unless you're uh, an Arthur Cox or an A and L, you don't have that that tiered system of admin support. Uh, so what you have is the highly skilled people doing the very low skilled typing jobs you know um and it becomes a very expensive resource and a very expensive way of doing it so we set up tpro to provide a very lean um business model around that so we we set it all up as a cloud-based service um we set it up to reduce the back and forth so rather than doing everything pen and paper in terms of the corrections and the back and forth to a secretary and a a, a lawyer we we set it up to automate that process. So if you dictate a, a letter, it's immediately with the secretary. Once the secretary types it, it's immediately back to you. You can make any corrections or make any notes online, essentially. And then the, that back and forth is expedited. It expedites the whole process. You can sign something electronically without having to you know, print anything off. So you take a, a very analog paper-based resource heavy process and you automate as many steps of that as possible and you take away all of the stuff and it becomes paperless or at least paper light. Um, and then after working with lawyers for, you know, six months to a year, we, we started organically getting calls from healthcare and from hospitals. And there was, there was actually, there was one sort of event, which was a, there was a big data breach in um, Tyler hospital. Um, and this was all in the press, so I'm sure it's no problem saying that. Um, mm. But it was a big sort of PR disaster for them at the time, and stuff had gone to the Philippines and been released online or something like that. And um, suddenly our phone starts ringing because we're an Irish company providing an Irish service, and jurisdictionally we controlled the data and we we're very security heavy uh, because we were dealing with the lawyers and we, you know, we were we were we were kind of selling that onshore on site on you know in country solution um and as soon as we sort of took a look at the healthcare and did the business analysis we realized okay jesus you've got most law firms in ireland are two or three fee earners most hospitals are 150 200 up to a thousand clinicians so the mm. volume of work is much higher per client um and then also you have all sorts of issues with dealing with lawyers in that they're litigious by nature. <laughs> if anything goes wrong, you're the one that's to blame. They're, they're not the quickest of payers, you know, whereas from a business point of view, if you can get government contracts with um, the HSE, things like that, they're obviously very good payers, um, not quick, but not bad payers, you know, they will pay you eventually. And you can kind of stand over that. And as I said, the volumes just increased. Um, and then over time, we layered in the AI and the technology, all in the, all in the sort of process of smoothing that whole piece of creating documents. Um, and we then slowly became a software company rather than a service company. Okay. That, that's the kind of the journey we've been on. Something that a lot of, so this is, not gone public yet, obviously, because we're just recording it now, but this is, I'm going to hazard, I guess, episode like 89, 90 over the last three months. So a lot of episodes and something that comes up regularly enough is the idea of 
fear, dealing with doubt, worry, frustration, um, and fear as a business owner, entrepreneur, CEO. Um, so a similar question for you. How do you deal with fear or manage fear? Um, I'm not trying to sound flippant when I say this, but it doesn't really affect me. Um, and it hasn't really affected me. Or I would say, you know, if you ask my business partner the same question, I'd say he would say the same thing. Um, I think there's there's a great thing in Western law, which is limited liability. So unless you're signing personal guarantees, there's really nothing to be afraid of. You can try something. If it doesn't work, you try something else. If it fails, the worst thing that happens is you have to liquidate a business. And again, you've asked what was the carryover from doing the receiverships and the liquidations, the insolvency stuff. The, the big carryover was generally people will walk away scot-free. And so unless you do something wrong or illegal, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. And that, that sort of platform has always given me the confidence to go out and try things. And I'd be a big believer in, you know, you're better, you're better off having something in the market and get feedback from clients and iterate, you know, rather mm -hmm. than trying to make something that's perfect. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I, I sort of, I talk to a number of people who are doing their own startups and I, I advise on a few things. And a lot of the time people get bogged down in, they have this great idea and they want to see that idea through to fruition rather than being agile and just going along the way. Okay, right. That's not working, but let's, let's just get something out quickly because the best resource you're ever going to have is a customer. You know, you can do all the yeah. validation, all the market research you want, but until someone's paying for it, you don't know if it's going to work. So there's a book that I reference a lot on this podcast and it's the uh, Leadership for Organizational Excellence book. The whole concept of it is it unravels kind of 13 blind spots that can hold back a potentially healthy business. Things like hiring, onboarding, not focusing on lead generation. So the question to you is, is there a blind spot that you can see that you've uh, potentially ran in into the early days and have since overcome and you can talk about it now so that people might not run into it or a blind spot that you think that uh, you're relatively good at and you could share some advice for people to help them overcome yeah I, I could probably give you one of each um, so what we're what we're very bad at and what we've traditionally been bad at is seeding control to people so I think we've we've always had kind of fairly clear ideas around what we want the business to do, where we want it to go, um, how we're going to achieve things. And then as that changes over time, we've been able to react and change our plans. What we've been bad at is articulating that to other people in a way that you can hand over control. Uh, and I think for the first, first two or three years of the business, certainly as it grew, we were unable to, get out of the weeds um, and take a kind of a strategic view on the business because we we wanted to be over everything and standing over everything and making sure we controlled every aspect of it and like every development decision, every strategic decision around marketing or sales, every, every aspect of delivery and training and support. We wanted to, you know, mm. I want to know what's happening there, there and there. And as soon as we... And I think we, we kind of got very lucky in that we hired a couple of very good people. 
And as soon as we realize that good people make your life easier and allow you to take hands off a little bit and take a step back and the benefits that you get from taking a step back, then we started hiring other good people and we started kind of spending more money on hiring good people. And we said, right, well, rather than, rather than kind of cutting our cloth to measure, let's invest in people. And so we can do the, the bit I was kind of talking about there where you get something to market and it's all see to your pants, Dale boy stuff. And you're, you know, you, you get something out there and it's, it's Wizard of Oz and you're pulling the strings behind the curtain. It looks great from a client point of view, but it's just a madhouse in the back end. And then you get that to a point where it's okay, we, we've, we've iterated on that and we fixed the initial bugs and we've worked with people and we've got mm -hmm. that to a stage where that's, you know, that's a product and that's sustainable then you should be able to hand that over to somebody and say, right, you look after this bit for me. And that could be, it could be a product or it could be a division of your business. It could be a function, whether it's accountancy or whatever. But if you hand that over to a good person, the bandwidth it gives you to reinvest yeah. and do what you're good at is, is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of what I think we're, we're good at and you know the reason that we've been kind of maybe successful is our mantra day one has been every touch point you have, every person in the business is a salesman. Everything you do is sales. And whether that's customer service, whether it's, you know, development, because what a customer sees is not, it's not, it's not the pitch you give them. It's not the business case you present them. It's, it's the day-to-day -day interactions. And especially our business model is very much kind of recurring revenue SaaS space. Um, so maintaining those long-term relationships and building relationships with people means that they'll do more business with you and they'll give you references and other people will buy because of the social proof that that brings. So everyone is a salesperson and every interaction is a sales event. And we try and, you know, drum that in, in terms of the, the culture of the company and how we, how we approach clients and, you know, how important it is to put the client first in in all scenarios if you could add one mandatory subject to a levels leaving cert for us listeners high school um and you had ultimate decision making power what would that subject be and why um okay it's an interesting one i i i i'd be very specific and i'd say everyone should be able to read a read a profit and loss sheet, read a set of accounts and understand how to balance books. Um, you know, ultimately, if you're running a business, it always comes down to now. And, and I know, you know, there are, there are companies out there, which you'll have founders where they, they get a great idea and they get some seed funding and then they get a series a, and they're always working to a runway and they're going to exit the business long before it makes a penny of profit. But the majority of people, that that's not the case. You've set up a business to make money. So I think I've come across a lot of people over the years who don't understand the connection of what they're doing to the bottom line and how what what effect that has and how how driving efficiencies in different areas of the business can affect the inputs and outputs of money and cash flows and things like that. Uh, and I think if, if people were able and taught how to read financial statements and understand financial statements in terms of a P&L and a balance sheet, that would, you know, that would increase 
productivity of, of the country tenfold. There's been a couple of people that have given that answer. Um, so maybe it uh, should be introduced. Two final <laughs> questions for you is uh, your loved ones are all safe, but your house is burning down and you can only save one item. What one item would that be? Oh. Uh, one item. Wow. Um, I'm going with the bike. The bike. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm prone uh, to being a bit of a fatty. So <laughs> I, number one, I need to need to keep the pounds off. Uh, number two, I enjoy, I enjoy the kind of where I get my kind of head spaces doing a bit of exercise um mm. and i you know you're, you're probably the same yourself and i know you know we kind of spoke before the, the podcast you've been up since 7 a.m doing prep mm. and preparing for these things and this if you have your own business going home doesn't mean you stop working the laptop's always out you're always doing something so mm. i think proactively resting and i do that with exercise and it's you know proactively go to the gym it's an hour away from everything proactively go out on the bike it's a couple of hours away from everything um so yeah the bike's the one nice answer final question is i'd like you to imagine we're talking as if it's the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last decade so if it was the year 2030 and you were when we were looking back on the last decade you can answer this personally or professionally but what would you like to be looking back on um I think from a professional point of view, obviously I, I, I want T pro to have, to have grown and become, you know, globally market leader. Um, and for us, mm -hmm. what that probably means is, um, you know, as, as well as the kind of the R and D side of the business, um, and the, the organic growth, we've a fairly strong M and A, um, side of the business. Um, and what that looks like is we, we acquire companies in other jurisdictions. And they mm -hmm. act as a pillar acquisition for us. It gives us referenceability. And because of the nature of the business in healthcare, it gives us compliance around all of the, you know, healthcare data and how that's processed and stored, et cetera. So over that period, I will have wanted to have done, you know, a number of these bolt-on acquisitions in different jurisdictions and use those to expand globally and layered in our, our technology, which is at the moment industry leading um, and to provide that real, innovation within a healthcare sector because it's it's so it's such a laggard in terms of technology adoption so i think you can if we were able to get that market access globally we can make a, a genuine difference to how healthcare is delivered amazing well i hope all of that does come true uh, i wish you nothing but the best going forward uh, but jonathan for being my guest today i'd like to thank you and wish you continued success brilliant Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Beautiful morning. Get a sun in my morning, babe.